from 11FS. I'm Simon Taylor and this is Fintech Insider News. Today we bring you CYBG buys Virgin Money for £1.7 billion, Visa blames its outage on a broken switch, and Acon launches his own cryptocurrency called Acoin. All this and more on today's show. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Fintech Insider News, brought to you in partnership with Microsoft Azure. We're coming to you live from the 11FS offices in WeWork Oldgate. My name is Simon Taylor and I'm joined by my 11FS colleague and co-host, David Breer. David, how are you doing, sir? Really good. Really like exceptional week sort of going on and lots of traveling around, which is always good fun. So, And it's sunny and the World Cup's on. I know. What could be better? And like England actually won. Like, I don't know about you. England. I kind of want to maybe turn this into the football ramble for 10, 10 15 <laughs> minutes. But uh, like the idea that England actually won the opening game in the World Cup is bizarre to me. Uh, so. we're, we're bigger winners here today because we're joined by Romy Savova, the CEO of Pension B. Romy, how are you? I'm doing really well. Thank Sadly you hot, so much for being well. with us. Um, <laughs> briefly, for those who don't know, who are Pension B? So Pension B is an online pension manager and we help people to find and combine their old pensions from previous periods of employment into one new online plan. Combine it all into one. I like that. Uh, Dave Cunningham, the CEO of Privacy Group. Uh, Dave, how are you doing, sir? Doing fantastic. Great to be here. And Privity Group. Privity Group, we do consent management. So uh, we've take, gone the hard yards and systemized how consent should be managed in any industry and uh, working on financial services, bringing a, a great solution to life, solving some problems. Solving some GDPR-related problems, I suspect. Yeah. It's almost like you knew this regulation was coming and built a company to solve a problem. Yeah, you know, the crazy thing, oh, we'll get into it, but the crazy thing is the founder didn't didn't really know this was coming down the track, said people are going to need to to verify themselves before they share data, and uh, then along comes these uh, handy legislations. I'll, I'll take luck over judgment every day, right? Yeah. Either that or he's a prophet. He may be a prophet. He's a prophet in his own land anyway. And of course, we're joined once again by Megan Kaywood, who is Chief Platform Officer at Starling. Megan, how are you doing? Yeah, doing well. And uh, you have some news. Yeah, I do. So we have an exciting new launch to tell people about. So what we're launching this week is joint accounts. So for those joint of, accounts. Woo, <laughs> joint accounts. So yeah, for those of you who don't know, Starling is a smartphone-based bank. We make it really easy to sign up and open an account. Now with D- joint does accounts. Does anybody not know that? Yeah. on the planet anymore come on like you guys are yeah. out there releasing things every other week right so everybody must know that by now yeah. hopefully so surely everyone knows but like this feature in particular because i as a, a u.s expat in the uk find banking just there's so much room for improvement full stop but particularly for expats but this feature so last year i opened a joint account at hsbc and then that was atrocious so i opened another one at metro and for both of it even just the basics of opening an account you have to make an appointment at a branch location you have to bring in all these documents then you have to bring in more id documents whereas on starling you just open it so you want to join account it searches for other starling account holders nearby literally physically near you um it recognizes them and shows their screen or their face on your screen you tap their face and then it shows up on their phone as well saying, do you want to open a joint account with this person? And if you both accept, that's it. So it's like a 10 second process to open a joint account. Do you know what I love about that? It's taking advantage of what digital gives you. It's not just trying to do a paper process. It's not like, hey, we used to do it with like checking your ID card and checking a piece of paper. So we're going to start there. You have to come to a branch so we can check some paper. It's like, hey, we've got your phone. The phone has some features that might be able to help you identify other Starlink. Let's stop there instead. I, I like that. Thinking about what digital gives you. Very yeah. cool. Yeah. I have so many questions about how you do that. Like the proximity stuff sounds amazing. Like, yeah. but, um Depends on who's in your proximity. Oh, <laughs> yeah. There could be some dodgy people, right? Yeah. They, do well, not accept the request. I was thinking more around my mother-in-law is often in my proximity, <laughs> and I don't know if we want to open a joint oh, wow. account. There's a whole TV show, and uh, there's a whole episode on jointed accounts from hell. Like, <laughs> I can't imagine that. Well, you, you don't have to accept it. You, uh, That's true. <laughs> and That's one true. of the things is we're, we're also made it very easy to close the joint account. So it's Easy to open, easy to close. That's important. So, you know, so, you know if, if heartbreak does happen, you can at least get out of the joint account easily. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, it's something we were kind of joking about, like the divorce button. It's not quite a divorce button, but making it easy because it's not just separations, but it's bereavement, some really emotionally trying time. So it's important 
just as much to nail like the worst case scenario and the separating as it is to like opening. So Absolutely. yeah, thanks. Is this uh, taking it to a new level? To Monzo is really pop- popular for dating. You know, oh, you've got this Carl card, but now it seems like Starling are signifying commitment. That you know, once you activate yeah. this, you know, you're, you're in. It, that makes it sound not very romantic. It's uh, <laughs> at that point, it's uh, my relationship is predicated on an API integration <laughs> rather than uh, any sort of emotional integration. It's commitment, but, man. It's commitment. Yeah, but convenience is everything, right? So <laughs> absolutely. Well, we're going to get on with uh, the rest of uh, this week's news. The first story comes from BBC News, and uh, I think uh, it was probably the biggest story in, in the UK this week in financial services, which is CYBG buying Virgin Money for one point seven billion pounds. So Clydesdale Bank and Yorkshire Bank. CYBG, which sounds like they should be a brand of some sort of, you know, like clothing. I'm sure there is one that's that's called that or something. Um, they, it was all shares deal. So everybody who had a Virgin Money share will get 1.2 CYB shares that they hold. And apparently CYBG said the new firm will be disrupting the status quo and championing customer service excellence. And they'll also become the UK's sixth largest bank with six million customers and trying to keep on the Virgin Money brand subject to agreement. So, um, any any thoughts on this one, David? I personally have always been quite disappointed with Virgin, if I'm honest with you, because it kind of feels like the brand has never, or the bank has never really lived up to the brand. Mm. You know, the brand is very disruptive in terms of like the way that it approaches things. And they're going to space. I know, exactly right. But it, it kind of feels like it's always a bit underwhelming given everything that Richard Branson has done in the past and, you know, for better or for worse, the, the sort of the way in which his sort of entrepreneurial spirit pervades through all the other brands that he's kind of done i kind of hope or i wonder whether this is a branding exercise or whether this is the beginning of them really trying to do something different i do wonder what this actually calls for in terms of some of the things that virgin have actually been doing underneath this as well so obviously there's been a a partnership and a relationship with 10x the ex barclay ceo anthony jenkins Mm -hmm. has been sort of leading i wonder what that means for this but it's going to be really interesting to find out to be honest with you hopefully this is the potential for them to really make um you know the virgin bank brand something unique but um i guess we'll wait and see any thoughts? Well, we do tend to deal with Virgin Money in the pension space. Um, and it's definitely struck me that they do things in a very old school kind of way. There's still a lot of paper going on. There's definitely still a lot of manual ID checking going on. And it does feel like an old school kind of institution with a new world type of brand. It's brand washing almost, isn't it? It's like, look how cool the brand is, forget about the process. Yes. I think the one thing that I'd be really interested to see is also what happens on fees in particular. Um, So in the pension space, Virgin has one of the higher charging products. And it's coming to the press quite a bit. So I'm wondering, if there's going to be any changes on that side. For me, I mean, <laughs> when you've got uh, two very large organizations coming together, the merger, it, it doesn't seem like a uh, an ideal platform to go uh, spinning out new services. Uh, so uh, disruption of the market doesn't really seem like <laughs> something that naturally flows from this, from this merger. But uh, let's see. Well, they got a little excessive with their marketing, right? Like, so it's the UK's first true national banking competitor to the status quo. One, questionable. Two, they also say the... the yeah, I was I mean, waiting for Megan to say that. Right, like, okay, you're a little late to the game, but sure. And also, you got there by acquiring a bunch of Northern Rock customers in 2011 in the financial crisis for a knockdown price. Like, Yeah. And the other thing that they start going on about is around open banking. Like, they're going to be the first one to do an aggregator facility using open API technology. And like, one, Yolt already does it with ING. Two, not even all the banks have open API. So like, you can't be the first to do it because it's not even possible to do yet. So I mean, I get that it's exciting, the merger, lots to be excited about and hope for. Maybe took the marketing a little too far on what it is that they've done and are doing. It feels more like a classic bit of M&A, right? This is a bunch of formerly distressed mortgages that now look a lot better on the balance sheet that grows the balance sheet of CYBG. And they get, uh, so I think Virgin Money had 79 branches. So they acquire some branches in some strategically interesting locations. And CYBG, you know, the Yorkshire Bank and Clydesdale Bank were sort of regional. You put those two together, there wasn't a brand to put over the top of them. So let's go get a bunch of mortgage customers that are pretty decent on the balance sheet, you know, that seems to be performing loans as opposed to the uh, kind of post-financial crisis ones. It just felt like a regular old M&A transaction, but they're trying to dress it up with some candy in terms of like, and we're also going to be a real challenge bank and we're going to do all this stuff. And I think round the table, the reaction is, 
BS. Like, it, you're not. Although, uh, CYBG does have this Studio B thing that looks pretty interesting. Some I, work I there. Wonder, I wonder what, what brand is actually going to go forward. Yeah. Because it's, it's rare for somebody to buy somebody just to use their brand, isn't it? It's like, you know, it'd be interesting to see what the future of this actually shakes out for. Have you seen the Studio B thing they've done? Like, uh, uk. Is that B-Bank? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like, that's actually pretty cool. Like, there's a brand there that's interesting. They're, they're trying to do some exciting things. They've done some interesting partnerships with CYBG and spoke to David Duffy, the CEO at the HM Treasury FinTech conference a couple of months ago, and he was talking about actually partnering with FinTechs. So maybe there's something on the CYBG side that makes some sense here, but the, that might not come through on the other side. Who knows? Like the, the press release looks like straight up M&A, but maybe behind the scenes they've got something that we don't know about. Yeah, maybe. Time will tell. Yeah. I will say there's one thing that makes me sad, and that's that we are losing a female bank CEO. There's very few of them around, and I'd love to see what Jainan does next. Mm. That's an interesting question. Yeah, there's a heck of a talent with experience. Where will they go? Yeah, I'm sure she's getting a lot of calls. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure, I'm sure. All right, uh, next story is just a bit of a hark back to this visa story that's been around for some time. So as some of you will remember, some time ago, earlier in June, visa had an outage. So uh, on a Friday night in London, people couldn't buy beer. It was quite horrific. So apparently five Riot. point... National <laughs> emergency. Uh, yeah, national emergency indeed. So 5.2 million transactions failed during its IT collapse because a backup data center didn't kick in. And apparently visa are going to hire an independent body to investigate investigate the outage they had to manually clear a backlog and it seems like they couldn't figure out where the failure was there was a hardware failure related to a network switch they couldn't figure out where that failure was and they couldn't flip to their disaster recovery site i mean like holy crap and cards just overtook cash in the uk mm-hmm. like this when yeah. when one network switch can bring down an entire thing it just really tells you that like hardware is so important and what was interesting is even though it was just visa it wasn't mastercard as well a lot of stores just stopped taking cards altogether. Like you try to go and use your mastercard and be like, oh, sorry, there's an outage. And so it just shows like they just have so much dominance in the market right now that if they go down, some people just assume that all card networks are down and just fully switch to just cash, which is really inconvenient. It tells you how dominant Visa have become. Like they've been really successful in being the dominant card brand in the past sort of decade or so, certainly in, in most developed markets. It is very scary, though, that they're reliant on a switch. Um, I think when I read that, I, I kind of imagine, you know, you switch on your light and it doesn't go on. And it's very scary to think that the payment system can be switched on and off like that as well. And that's the thing that I'm struggling to understand on this one, to be honest with you. Having spent a bunch of time looking at sort of systems and hardware engineering before, there isn't a single switch. It's kind of a multiple fallbacks, multiple failbacks on this, these types of systems that actually mean that there is no single uh, yeah. single dependency. You that should actually have like would... eight of them coming in through different, yeah. I'm concerned that this necessarily isn't the 100% of the where the actual issue really is. And if it is, to your point, such a critical part of the financial services industry shouldn't be down to one piece of infrastructure failing. Yeah, I, I worked in a data center for a couple of years uh, for Thesis, actually. And similarly, they do a lot of the uh, debit card processing for most of the country of Ireland, right? So when you're dealing with authorizations of cards, this is the most important thing. It becomes like national infrastructure at that point, you know, strategically important that the payment systems continue to work. The amount of effort and energy that goes into keeping these systems up in real time is incredible. But I think it talks to how reliant we've become on this and how normal it's become. And like I said, yeah, I think you're right, David. There's probably a lot more going on than some of the rumors that are swirling. You know, a company like Visa that has ridiculous uptime, that has a track record of always being on, always being there, doesn't look and feel right, does it? And, and I loved the thing on Money 2020 with the Visa keynote, uh, where I think it was the CEO of Visa Europe, or I can't remember who it was, came out and the first word was, Sorry. <laughs> yeah, and, and you've got to have a lot of respect for that. The way that they've handled it and the tone of which they've handled it with has been quite good. Uh, I just guess I'm not sure about the cleanness of the explanation so far. Yeah. You know? It'd be interesting to find out more. I mean, they, they did have that merger between Visa Europe and Visa Inc. And there was a lot of things coming together. And I know that they've been, been really busy on, on merging the two. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see. It's not, it's not like a 
the usual transparency that we're used to in fintech, let's say, at the moment, and it seems like they don't particularly know themselves. We saw similar things with the challenges TSB are having as well. Like, actually, this stuff is hard. Getting to know the answer with traditional hardware uh, when things are running at pace, at scale, can be really, really hard. I don't think anybody wanted this to happen, and we wish them well kind of bringing it back around. I think it'll be really interesting to see the, you know, the ramifications of this and things like TSB to a certain degree in terms of people's risk appetite. You know, everybody's mm. very kind of open to sort of moving forward and changing things. But actually, like say, when you get to the the size of, you know, I think it very much calls into to question the way in which people do scale digital transformation, you know, mm. particularly in the TSB space space where you know anybody who's a banking executive anywhere right now must be thinking you know digital transformation and cut overnight and these types of things are probably not a good way of doing scary, implementation aren't they? yeah well i mean this this has probably been one of the classic arguments for being cloud native and born in the cloud right is if you are able to have eight to ten different instances of your core systems running in multiple clouds like you've got amazon and microsoft and google running your service for you in multiple clouds even as a backup but like that's where a lot of the fintechs are or dlt right distributed ledger tech no i wouldn't put anything on those (laughs) (laughs) starting from scratch is definitely the way that a lot of these players have to go i think oftentimes what's happening is you are upgrading legacy technology to the next level of legacy technology and the world just isn't built to support legacy technology in the same way that it was 20 30 years ago um but we still have conversations with major pension providers um who are seriously kind of considering whether the cloud is a good thing or not there's a lot of fear around the cloud isn't there it's like oh but it's somewhere else and there's this thing like if i can go see the server then i'm safer but actually if they let you in to see the server then you've got a problem exactly <laughs> you don't want to be able to see the server and you might flick the wrong switch yeah exactly. <laughs> like don't let that's probably what happened at visa <laughs> do not let executives in data centers <laughs> well, I, I was li- literally having that discussion with somebody this week actually and it was it's a fundamental change in how big banks do procurement that take out clauses where you can walk around a data center and not get shot by somebody from AWS. Mm. You know, like it is a strange one, but, and I think it's one of those ones that like, I can't imagine Megan, you or Anne at any any point was like, yeah, we need to like buy some property and put some, uh, put some servers in it. You know, it's just, you start from a completely different place. Well, and I think these problems are often mitigated by starting from scratch, as we were saying with one of the things with Starling is we're constantly killing our own architecture, causing it to fail over and restart. But it's because we have an item potent architecture, which is specifically set up such that any one piece could fail at any given time. And it's not going to take down the service. Microservices, isn't it? Yeah, it's a microservices architecture. You've basically got this modular Lego like I think the big consultants have been selling this idea of the Lego bank for a long time, but actually the idea that you could bring that in over the top of the legacy is complete bullshit, right? Yeah. Frankly, it is. If you've got the monolith underneath it, it doesn't matter what's on top. You've still got a monolith. No way, man. Buy an ESB. Put it in. <laughs> Just like integrate everything. It's Integration all good. is death. <laughs> the other thing that was really concerning here is that they had to manually clean up the backlog. When I read that, I really thought, wow, how many people did you need to clean up that backlog? And how accurate was it? I think anytime million transactions. Yeah, but anytime you're relying on people week. to do that kind of cleanup, there is bound to be error. And Visa's just still one of those companies where you kind of take it for granted that they've done it right. Yeah, yeah, which which is credit to them that you take it for granted that they've done it right. And, like, I must be, I wouldn't want to be one of those humans, like, trying to go through that respect to that person and those people, whoever they were. And not, not wanting to use social media as a barometer of accuracy or in any way, shape, or form type caveat, caveat, caveat. But there doesn't seem to be a lot of fallout from customers on, you know, Twitter or mm. wherever they uh, shouting well. about a problem, you know. TSB, you still see the the kind of fraud and various different things that kind of have occurred, but they seem to have put it right pretty quickly, don't yeah, they? Yeah, it was custom- quick. It was quick. I mean, I think with TSB, we had to contact the financial ombudsman oh, wow. um, a couple of days ago, and there is a special kind of option that you need to dial on if you are a TSB customer. Wow. So it's, hello, welcome to the financial ombudsman service. If you're a TSB customer, press five. <laughs> That's when you really know you're in trouble, when, when you're an option on a, 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 a call line, right? Oh. So. 
Indeed. All right. Well, so now for something completely different. So Square, the company in the US uh, founded by Jack Dorsey, have obtained a cryptocurrency license, famously the Bit license by the New York State Department for Financial Services. So he's noted that the decision to enable users to buy and sell Bitcoin in Square's cash app had been a pretty contentious move within the company and remains a source of tension. Apparently, they made $34.1 million in revenue from the Bitcoin offering in the first quarter this year, but their costs were $33.9 million, according to the shareholder letter. So, like, I wonder why in a peer-to-peer money app they've gone for Bitcoin. Jack Dorsey seems to be a true believer in this stuff, but it, the jury still seems out for the rest of the industry. But he was first on Square, he was early on Twitter. Is he just ahead of the market here, or has he finally lost his marbles? I think it's a great marketing tool, right? Um, like, people love to hear about what's going on with Bitcoin. Right. Um, and if you're interested Introducing it within your services, then suddenly people want to talk about that. Oh my God, there's Bitcoin there. <laughs> I think um, you know we've seen people like Revolut do pretty well, making pretty decent margins from this type of thing. I guess the the tension internally in in Square has probably been about probably from an ethical perspective with regards to you know treating and using this as a investment method for for customers yeah people are going to lose out and and i think it's an interesting one because actually there's a tension there between you know creating a deep and meaningful relationship and a brand when actually what you're trying to do is make a quick buck out of cryptocurrency Mm -hmm. interchange like it's a it's an interesting one yeah because the interesting thing about jack's comments is he i sense he in good faith believes in the future of money being decentralized and not involving all this stuff even though Visa invested in Square and um, he's reliant on the existing payment networks but the reality might be quite different in terms of the service that's being offered like I wonder you know what problem is this solving for a customer I mean do, do you have any views on that I don't think it's solving a massive problem I think it's just it just illustrates that they want more transactions happening on their platform and people are trading and private equity houses are, uh, we've talked to some who are building uh, new crypt- crypto exchanges. And I think just the way Revolut have and, and now Square have, I think just the more transactions you have for whatever it is on your platform, the better, uh, I think. But I, I wonder is the... 33.9 million I, I presume a lot of those that that cost won't be ongoing on a monthly basis I'm sure there was some yeah, setup cost there, there. Yeah. yeah so I think it's going to be good do, do you think this sort of starts to increasingly legitimize Bitcoin and cryptocurrency in the mainstream like, is this something where the more people who are doing this type of stuff the more normal because I, I don't think the volatility in the market really you know we've not reached a sustained level of uh, normal, what we'd consider from a stocks and shares or from a uh, other currencies perspective, really, have we? Well, I mean, other currencies. I mean, if you compare it to Venezuela or Zimbabwe, then you know, Bitcoin's remarkably stable. Reasonably uh, edge cases yeah. there, but yeah. <laughs> but but I mean, outside of the top sort of 30, 40 currencies, it's pretty stable. Like we're we're, we're spoiled by living in the UK or you know, being used to the US dollar or the euro. Like currencies are not stable as a rule, so it, it's kind of not that bad compared to some other stuff but but currency is usually stable relative to the country you know Venezuela has not been particularly politically stable, therefore the currency hasn't been... Which is the argument for why Bitcoin looks a lot more like digital gold, right? So it's not related to a country, it's this other thing that's on the internet that moves around a bit. But the thing that I think could affect it in a way that a particular geographical location couldn't is the fact that, like, with the Ethereum crash last year, it was because one large holder of Ethereum just sold all at once, and it caused a lot of other stocks to short, and it caused this massive crash all of a sudden. So there this question of if this makes it become more mainstream more people are buying it does it increase the value of it for the top end leading to maybe potentially more of these moments where people withdraw large sums causing crashes well it's interesting the, the reason that crash happens is because the infrastructure had been built for a retail mass market audience and actually the infrastructure that had been built didn't resemble what you'd see in capital markets in capital markets you'd have circuit breakers as soon as something drops 10% you get a warning 20% circuit breaker hits and then you know the thing's frozen circuit breaker didn't work out well for Visa, did it? Though, yeah. <laughs> I see, I see. Different kind of circuit breaker. I see what you're doing. I see what you're doing. Um, but like the really interesting thing is the institutional investors and the general perception, I think, in um, you know the tier one financial services companies is 
hey, this stuff's pretty pretty interesting. There's margin to be made on the spreads here. The infrastructure in terms of custody and the infrastructure in terms of broker-dealers and OTC desks and the liquidity, it's all improving. And if the economics work for kind of a, an investment bank or the economics work for somebody who's an FX dealer or a, an OTC trader, then you suddenly find yourself in a position where like, it goes away from the original vision of being, that I think Jack Dorsey's bought into of this, like, hey, it's going to democratize money into... Like, hey, it's this other interesting thing for financial markets, which is where it's kind of going, but it's not kind of where people want it. Yeah, but that's really scary, actually, because it's not a real asset. I mean, there's nothing, you know, yeah, but there's something fundamentally underpinning the US dollar, and that's the credit rating of the United States government. Whereas here, you know, what is underpinning this? You know, belief in an algorithm, you know, there's no yield, there's no yield that's being generated by this asset. So, you know, it's the same as saying, you know what, I think that red is the best color. And so I'm going to invest all my money in red. I've made that gambling bet quite often. But isn't that the same as art? No, I think art is different. Art is different because we've had a lot of different types of markets throughout history. People have a way of valuing art. So it's older. It's older. <laughs> it's definitely older. The argument is usually value is created around scarcity. And actually, I guess within the cryptocurrency space, particularly with, you know, with Bitcoin, there is a scarcity of it that actually denotes the, denotes the value of it. But it just so happens the scarcity is just completely made up. So like, it's, I did sound like I was going for yeah. the But I do agree with you to a certain degree. This all seems to be made up. I mean, there's no kind of pleasure in watching Bitcoin in the same way that you get pleasure from watching art, right? There, there's always some kind of underlying, I guess, purpose for a transaction in an actual asset to take place that goes beyond speculation. Um, and like, try and show me what's beyond speculation when it comes to Bitcoin. So the, so the Bitcoiner argument is that it's the token that secures the Bitcoin network itself and allows decentralization to exist. So um, the Bitcoin network can't exist without people buying the token. It is secured and harder to hack by the fact that people... That sounds the... like really circular logic. <laughs> it is, but it's also true. Like, so if if you were able to hack the Bitcoin network, in theory, you've got a $250 billion prize, except you can't because there's um, so many computers doing all of this hard work to maintain the network because it has value. So it's the but price. But if you do, then it's all worthless, right? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> but also you could potentially run off and make yourself, I don't know, 10% of that quite easily. So if you were... Well, that's the speculation part. Yes. There is definitely an argument to say it's speculative, but there's an interesting article by the St. Louis Fed from about a month ago where they made direct comparisons between the early US dollar and early Bitcoin. And they say everything that starts looks a lot like this and people question it until suddenly it becomes normal and we figure out what the utility is. So, Or it becomes a tulip. Or it becomes a tulip. Time will tell. There's a lot of social networks that look like Facebook when they begin, when Facebook began as well, mm-hmm. isn't there? So, but I, I think, like, how many stories are we going? We'll see what happens. Yeah. Like, uh, time. Well, it's because you've got to tune in next week, David. Oh, yeah, sorry. <laughs> I think the fact that there is a license for this, right? I think the fact that the regulators are taking it seriously to me, that's the biggest sign of some sort of legitimization coming through. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, gambling is legal. I think that's a really interesting point because it's, you know, usually I think the adage is like marketeers spoil everything. But in this instance, it's like people looking to make money is spoiling everything because <laughs> essentially the people who are uh, really looking to make the fast buck out of this stuff are the guys making, you know, random coins. Yeah, and they like moved on from Bitcoin a long with, time ago. Yeah, like the, the amount of bombardment that I get from YouTube ads ads for like random coins of various different subscription and like you know i bought them all obviously but uh because i'm gullible but um but i think it's the thing it's like people make trying to make short-term fast money from being predatory to other people is usually the people who break stuff a lot of markets look like this in the early days but i I think in 10 years we'll look back on bitcoin and and see it very differently to how it it appears today and we will laugh as we drive our lamborghinis and we will happy we drive our lamborghinis on the moon uh, all right, next story. Monzo launches Monzo Web, which I'm thinking about Spider-Man immediately. Uh, so apparently this is a light uh, web interface that lets customers access their accounts, quote, in an emergency. They can sign in using an email address linked to their Monzo account to view the last 50 transactions or freeze and defrost their debit cards. So uh, interesting little web interface. The first thing I thought was like, how common is this use case? Like you've not got your phone and you need to do a little bit of servicing? I guess it's when your phone is stolen. Yeah, I think that's what they're going for. But also, like, is this 
something that like negates their like we're a mobile only bank or is this you know are they going to move servicing there now or is this kind of like you know what what does that mean they've lost the tagline they're now mobile only plus light web (laughs) (laughs) it's not as catchy I love that it's Monzo Web and not internet banking, which has existed for quite some time type mm. thing. This is a, you know, an invention of something that exists type thing. But I can see the edge cases for it. And I'm sure that it's, this has been down to people asking for this. I'm sure they wouldn't just do yeah. it out of the, yeah. the sake of doing it. But um, I like that idea of owning a term as well. Like it's not internet banking, it's Monzo Web. It's just like a little bit of thing you can do. Exactly. It's not like they've introduced checkbooks or anything. I mean, it's not that <laughs> that, that regressionary. I, I think it's pretty useful. You know, if you're if you're out of battery, if you need to really in in emergency situations, does it let you uh, initiate any transactions? Not at this stage. I don't think it does. No. But I guess given you know the the whole sort of point around infrastructure and having an architecture that actually is consuming, you know, doesn't matter what the touch point is, but the service is being consumed by the same point, then there'd be no reason why you couldn't open up all of the same features and functionality other than the fact that laptops are kind of stupid and mobile phones have got way more capability in them than the laptops do. So it's going to be, you know, a lot harder to do a lot of the really interesting stuff around, you know, proximity and various different things that you would do if you can do it with a mobile. So completely. So I caught up with Francisco, who's a product manager at Monzo to learn more. Great. So I'm here with Francisco from Monzo. Uh, You're a product manager over there, I believe. Francisco, do you want to briefly introduce yourself? Yeah, sure. So I'm uh, Francisco. I'm a product manager at Monzo. And my main focus is all our internal tooling uh, platform and everything we do to scale um, our customer operations in an easier and smoother way. Brilliant. And uh, speaking of customer ops, I guess um, you announced Monzo Web. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what Monzo Web is? Yeah, so this is really exciting for us. So uh, we listen a lot to our customers, as you know. And one of the things that came very consistently as a feedback was that being an app-driven bank, this is really good and exciting, but also uh, it's a bit worrying for when you have an emergency and you lose access to your phone, for example. So what we're doing is coming up with a very simple interface over the web where you can access your account, see your latest transactions, and then you have also the ability to freeze uh, and unfreeze your card, which is pretty much what you want to do in an emergency. And then, of course, you can have other ways to reach out to us, to our team to help you given uh, the emergency you're going through. So there's no transactional capability. I can't make payments from the website. It's not internet banking. So exactly. At the moment, it's just a minimal interface for emergencies. So it didn't invest in uh, the ability to perform anything that you can do in the app. So it's not at all a replica of the app. And so examples of when I might use this is if I've lost my phone or my phone's out of battery and I still need to still need to be able to at least make sure that the service is still there and nobody's spending on my card, that sort of thing. Yeah, exactly. Either that or you're like robbed, for example, you lost access to the phone and the wallet. Uh, you just want to quickly go online and freeze your card so that nothing happens, for example. Cool. And so does this mean that you're going to be dropping more features into Monzo Web in the future? Or was this just a kind of, uh, this is kind of it for Monzo Web? So for now, that's it. We, of course, are super open to feedback as usual, and we really want to hear our community. We know it's it's not uh, as good as Yap, but that's on purpose. So for now, that's it. It covers pretty much what customers wanted. Let's see what the community says. Excellent. And uh, if people want to use it, try it out, where can people do so? So it's actually quite simple. You just go on uh, web.monzo.com and the way to log in is pretty simple. There's a big button there. You just put your email and the login flow is just as in the app. You receive a, a magic link in your email, you click it, you're in. Oh, wow. Simple as that. Uh, brilliant. Well, um, I, I hope uh, this works out for everybody. And uh, Francisco, thank you very much for being on Fintech Insider. No problem. Alrighty, thank you very much, Francisco. Um, next story, guys, is apparently I like this one uh, from producer Laura. The customer is always right. Uh, no more fees for the customers of Curve, who were also customers of Tesco Bank. So, for the uninitiated, Curve is one of those cards that lets you combine all your cards into one and spend uh, using them and and have I mean, basically arbitrage fees. So, apparently, since the first of June, Curve customers who'd used a Tesco Bank credit card as a funding card were being recharged incorrectly. They were being charged uh, 3.99% cash advance fees for every purchase that they'd made with Curve, which is really interesting. So everything was coming out as a cash advance. 
So now it turns out that the issues apparently have been resolved and uh, there's no more cash advance fees for Curve customers who are using their Tesco Bank credit card. And Tesco are actually refunding customers who are incorrectly charged um, since the issue was highlighted on the 1st of June. So like, this is a really interesting one because Curve was always in an interesting space, but it seems like the customer's winning here. I don't really understand this and it's kind of breaking my brain trying to work it through, but it looks like a fintech basically denoting how a big bank should operate its fees yeah is that right but with customer advocacy as the reason right so you have a bunch of tesco bank customers who chose to use the curve card instead of the tesco card who were incurring fees because tesco decided that anybody who used the curve card was using a cash advance not making a regular old transaction and it seems like the customers complaints around that um have, have won the day i do wonder how easy they're making the refund like are they just refunding it to your card no questions asked or do you have to fill in a form or call someone? Or is there like friction to getting the refund or are they just giving it? And, and how many people are like. using Curve now? Like I didn't think it was so big that like outcry might not mean what I think it means given the volumes that I would have thought would have been sort of going through that. But if, if it's been so significant, I, I wonder if there's an element here of the most advantageous way of um, using curve and these two things together you know it's one of those ones where actually if there's some sort of loophole that martin lewis is under you know uh, uncovered and put on a forum somewhere where if you use these two magic things together it makes gold then um you know it it seems to be too odd a niche thing to really be an outcry if i'm honest yeah that's nice that they made it right i like curve uh I, i think it's got a really good user experience and for those i suppose those who have bank accounts with incumbent banks where the functionality isn't really great uh if you if you just add add your card to curve and then you get your email receipt straight away into your inbox it's it's really really handy i mean for a long time, I, I used to top up a Revolut account with my bank card. And then on January 13th, then I just got charged every time for doing that. And uh, it certainly affected my my use of it, for sure. It's interesting that what do you think the reasons for the banks, like Tesco in this case, for adding fees or, or pushing its fees would be? Are they just trying to discourage customers from arbitraging them out? I think so. I mean, I'm, I'm presuming just the, the curve get a little bit of the uh, get a bit of the interchange fee if they use the curve thing and uh you know i I suppose there there should be some shared pain there i suppose Uh, well i guess yeah they've been disintermediated and they're just it's kind of fighting back right but like if you use a proxy card does that equal cash advance if you're using a credit card i just feel like it's a sneaky way to charge a fee and i think that's pretty traditional in financial (laughs) services right oh people won't notice this one (laughs) (laughs) oh we can sneak in a fee jason always says that uh traditional banks have been like bad landlords you know they're constantly trying to charge you that fee and not give you the deposit back yeah definitely had one of those (laughs) (laughs) all righty we'll be back shortly we're just going to take a quick break and hear from our sponsors imagine A new era of banking defined by an end-to-end digital platform that is open, packaged, and upgradable. Harnessing real-time data to enrich client lives. Adopting the cloud to increase speed, agility, and scale. Using APIs to create platforms and ecosystems that redefine value in a world of open banking. It's time to reshape banking. Temenos, with 25 years of experience spanning 3,000 banks in over 150 countries, helps banks achieve their digital vision faster. Welcome back. As a reminder, Fintech Insider is brought to you by 11FS. We build fully digital products and services for clients big and small. So if you want to reach out to the team, you can find us at 11FS.com, connect on Twitter at 11FS team, or just drop us an email. Hello at 11FS.com. All right, let's get on with the show. Our next story, this is about a company called Brex, not Brexit. Apparently they've picked up $57 million to build an easy corporate-ish credit card for startups. So they were founded out of San Francisco. They're a Y Combinator alumni. And apparently they underwrite businesses. And when deciding on credit limits, they sidestep the credit history, consider factors such as who's invested in the startup. So they're going to have a, a liquidity line. So they extend credit in a different way. First five cards issued to a startup. So I guess it's like expenses cards, right? Corporate cards. 
um, are apparently free. After that, it costs $5 per user per month for additional cards. And they have the ability to capture receipts with your phone, integrating with your accounting stuff like QuickBooks and Xero and all that kind of stuff. And they got all kinds of investors in there. You got Peter Thiel and uh, Yuri Milner, Ribbit Capital, uh, former retired Visa CEO Carl Pascarella. Um, this, this is an interesting one. Like, I think there, there hasn't really been a good expenses card solution out there. I mean, I don't know if you guys have seen anything. I don't know. I think there are. Like Soldo, you know, there's lots of people. Clio, you know, lots of people who kind really? of do this type of stuff out there that do provisions. But it's not usually from a credit card perspective. Yeah. It's usually a, a current account. Um, What's wrong with American Express? Well, so American Express actually are quite difficult in order to be able to create and provision sub-accounts. So me... If we all start a company, being in a position where we could issue separate lines of credit in a small business credit card is really, really difficult to do. Their small business credit cards are usually predicated on a a sole individual, whoever it was, was the originator's credit limit, which if it was hypothetically me, (laughs) if uh, there was a situation where actually you overreached on your small business credit card hypothetically, then it would affect my credit card hypothetically. So there's definitely kind of problems in there in terms of actually how those things are actually provisioned, mostly because it requires about five sheets of paper to actually do anything. Yeah, so that problem that the credit rating is tied to the founder individual and therefore so is the consequences of credit behavior. The cost to is to the individual, not to the business. Exactly. Don't get me wrong. I hypothetically also love the points. <laughs> well, I think that's why people really use credit cards. Right. I mean, I think that if you're a small business, I don't know if you're going to be relying on credit card debt to really kind of get things going. And if you are, that's pretty risky. Right. I mean, if you have clients in other countries and suddenly you've got expenses and you need to travel a little bit, and as entrepreneurs, you're not paying yourself an an insane amount of cash, right? Especially in the first few years, right? So you're you're thinking longer term. Then a line of credit is really, really helpful to manage the fact that you've got these bills now. A client's going to pay you in 30 days, so you'll be able to net that off, but you just don't want it to impact your family's balance sheet. I, I, I think I think the, the points are definitely a thing, but I think it's the predictability of a payment. You know, and actually, almost like it's um, credit cards and business are very much like reconciliation. You know, like you know at the end of the month the amounts of things that you've bought, therefore it's this amount of money type thing, rather than the chipping away at cash flow and, and, and everything as throughout the month type thing. So I think it's a, it's perversely, it's a delay, it's an onset delaying of clearing a balance by 30 to 60 days, depending on the credit card in terms of where you're at. But I, I do think it is a real problem, not just from a credit card perspective, because I'm not sure I necessarily buy the seeing who the investors are in a company, because, you know, as much as like your investor is like really pumped about your company, if they, they have to suddenly clear your credit cards, they're not going to do that. You know what I mean? Yeah. But definitely that's how do you issue credit cards, accounts, access to finance for people who work in your company is a problem I've experienced, you know, firsthand. I think the lack of a personal guarantee is a big thing. And uh, then also the fact that, you know, from running a startup and people having to pay for expenses and then uh, get reimbursed at the end of the month. I mean, if this makes it easier for startups to to take some of that pressure off, I think that's really cool. And the fact that they're giving up to 10 times the credit limits that a normal card offers, I think anything that can give a temporary backstop to startups, uh, I think it's, it's pretty cool. You get into like a, if you're giving somebody 10 times the amount of credit, that's worrying. Like I want to see their risk profiling and how they ease you into the giddy sense that you've got 10 times the amount of money that you had before you know i'm i'm hoping responsibility is being done on their risk profiling and credit limits you know it's not really mass market is it if if you have to have taken on investment and they can see your investor profile it's not like the the answer to every sme's uh (laughs) problem right it's not like silicon valley startups to spend money crazily is it no (laughs) it's free scooters too that's the worry (laughs) But yeah, I mean, I think if you are big enough to be getting investor funded, then you probably don't need a credit card for cash purposes. You need it for access to money when you're in very specific situations. And I suppose this would work if it integrates really well with the rest of your financial ecosystem. But if they don't give you the points, um, then I still think that people would prefer American Express as they do in their personal lives. 
Points make prizes, right? Yeah, points win prizes. Um, but what doesn't win prizes is apparently statement banter. So apparently uh, lenders are warning buyers that they can be refused mortgages due to quote-unquote banter or having a joke about uh, things happening on the statement. So this is um, when people are using, quote, inappropriate language for person-to-person transfers. Let's say I was going to send you money and I went, ha-ha, drugs, ha-ha, like all that sort of stuff, like in the transaction reference. This is my favorite. (laughs) This is my favorite story. I'm immediately sending everybody money and doing this. Like... uh, So apparently an expert from Mortgage Lender also confirmed that they've been refused because these jokes make them seem irresponsible. Like, if making a joke makes me irresponsible, then screw you, Lender. Like, you can't have my business. (laughs) Yeah, well, what about emojis? How do those classify you? Like, if you have emoji in the reference I don't think HSBC supports emojis. (laughs) (laughs) I I was going to say, the IBM Z series mainframe does not support emoji, uh, even though it should be up to date with Unicode, which, you know, shout out to Jeremy Burge, the chief emoji officer. But, like... seen buyers who've had mortgages refused because a payment reference might say drugs and apparently it's a joke between friends but when an underwriter sees it they might think an applicant isn't very responsible like come on who are these underwriters i don't get it i mean if they're clearly documenting their expenses i mean they're responsible (laughs) (laughs) that's a responsible the hit i ordered on x you know i mean it's it's exactly it's just good accounting isn't it when when i tried to kill pikachu (laughs) how does it work with gdpr right i mean surely you need to be giving consent for your data to be processed in certain ways and you know i don't think that you do give the bank consent to process your i don't give you consent to judge me (laughs) definitely not but also you know are they allowed to use this type of data in particular to make credit decisions about you i don't know how that works with gdpr i think you've actually got a really interesting point there i mean we've got a gdpr expert right here in privity and div yeah well i think the non-story about that was kind of exposed where aib in ireland were were said to be looking at facebook profiles and that uh you know, it, it turned out to be, you know, complete codswallop, if that's a word still. <laughs> that's not a good thing, right? Yeah, yeah, no, it, it, it didn't. It, it wasn't the case. I mean, I don't see it as if you're trying to get a, get a loan, you've got to get give express permission for the underwriter to view your transaction history. I don't think it extends to uh, <laughs> the description of the transactions, really. In, but, uh, you know, who knows? Who knows? <laughs> this, this is one of the, the ones that I doubt they sat around in the uh, European Commission and said, if I send my friend drugs money uh, and I and I note it on my on my bank statement, is, is this uh, going to affect my uh, my ability to get a mortgage? I, I think I think people always presume this is what cryptocurrency and cash is for, right? So uh, <laughs> seeing it in a bank statement is just weird. Is this the, an example of the sun taking something out of proportion and just like yeah. doing the sun thing? The sun yeah. taking things out. How dare you? <laughs> All right. Well, whilst we're on ridiculous stories, I'm from page6.com. Apparently, rapper Akon is going to launch his own cryptocurrency called Acoin. He's currently at the, uh, what is it? The, the Cannes Lions launching a cryptocurrency called Acoin that will be available for sale in two weeks in the hopes it will help Africa. When was the last time someone listened to Akon? Well, since I listened to this story. Did you, did you just um, smack that story down? I'm just saying. Okay, so there's Akon, who I used to listen to maybe in college. Um, and then there's people who buy cryptocurrency. And what is the overlap between yeah. those two oh. kinds of audiences? It's, a, it's an insightful Venn diagram I believe we should make. <laughs> uh, so apparently, the uh, one site, uh, the site for the new cryptocurrency states that an Acon Crypto City is a development on 2,000 acres of land that the rapper singer was given by the president of Senegal and will be the first of its kind 100% crypto-based city with Acoin at the center of transactional life. I mean... I think he. I think he really means well here. Wait, so he has a crypto city as well as his own cryptocurrency? Yeah, that's wow. like Disneyland for crypto. Well, that's no, amazing. No, but hang on, going like harken back to the stories earlier on, where cryptocurrency is lacking the physical country and the economy of that country. Like Acon might be onto something here, right? <laughs> like he can ensure that the price of this what was it, Acoin? 
mm. is, you know, so the GDP of, what is it, a coin a year? I don't know what it's going to be called, like needs to be good. And then he can maintain a stable currency for his people. It makes perfect sense. I don't know how sense. to react to that. <laughs> But I mean, who gets into a conversation with the president and says, how about I give you 2,000 acres of land and uh, you make this uh, city and uh, perhaps we could spin up a, uh, a cryptocurrency to, to back it all. But I, I think as part of my extensive research this morning on this, uh, when I was listening to Smack That, Eminem um, was featured on his on his biggest hit. And the first two words of the song were uh, shady and corrupt because they were featured on the song. But Eminem went on to kind of pre-endorse this and he said, they're going to flip for this Akon shit. You can bank on it. So they were so, going to flip the coin on Binance. That was going to happen. Yeah. That so was this, one for the crypto nerds. This is uh, back to the profit story earlier. This is Eminem prophesizing. He was 10 this years is going to happen. He, he yep. knew it was going to happen. Well, so there's Wakanda and now there's like this Akon land. I guess um, he must have seen a film and got really excited. What's really sad about this is we're talking about a space with like genuine real needs for like financial inclusion. And this is the story that comes out about cryptocurrency. And there's actually a lot of work in the UN around can they use the underlying technology in blockchain and DLT to solve some of the problems about making sure that the people who need it the most really get the money and avoid corruption and get around some of the payment systems and, and corruption that happens. So, like, there is an element, a nugget of a good idea in here, but it just seems like uh, well-intentioned ridiculousness um, at this point. Do you think, back to our point earlier around how cryptocurrencies lack what other currencies have because they're not tied to a particular country or location or credit of anyone else, this is tying it to Acon CryptoCity. Yeah. You know what I mean? Is it, Physical, is it starting yeah. to move in that direction? Acres, a city with yeah. a long history of good creditworthiness. <laughs> I don't buy the intrinsic yeah, value totally argument, That's a, that, but that's a story for another day. I do love the idea that it's not running water or medical care or food, mm-hmm. uh-huh. but cryptocurrency that Africa requires. You mm-hmm. know, like... Bob Geldof just didn't know what the fuck he was talking about, did he? <laughs> so there is some interesting... Uh, I hate to take this in a serious route, but there's some good work you by... You keep the, doing that today. There's some good work by the Gates Foundation that says financial inclusion is actually the cornerstone of transforming economies. If you can make people property owners, landowners, if you can put them in a position in which they are able to take control of their financial lives, then suddenly a, a lot of the downstream problems start to get solved. You can build an economy around solving some of those challenges. But it, uh, of course it's nowhere near as simple as his money there are some really significant challenges in making sure that people who can have money get money um but god bless Acon for trying right and uh i mean this is a way to get yourself back in the news if uh, your, your music isn't doing so well absolutely i mean dj Khaled tried it we've seen how many rappers try and do this Quite Quite mayweather few. tried to do it like, ghostface killer from the wu-tang clan yeah lots, all, lots of different rappers have had a go at this one they have right well on that crypto crazy note um that wraps up the show but before we go i just want to ask our guests where they can find out more about you Romy where can they find out more about you and well Pension we are on www.pensionv.com nice and easy I like it what about you Dave uh, we're on uh, privity.com and uh, at Dave Barna or at get privity and uh, yeah look forward to solving your consent needs <laughs> solving all them consent needs <laughs> uh, what about you Megan for Starling on the App Store or Play Store just Starling Bank and then for me it's just at Megan Kwood on Twitter thank you Mr. Breer randomly let's go for Gamertag I'm Breer Rabbit on Xbox let's go for yeah, that one I like love this. to play FIFA with you guys <laughs> yeah. I'm at SY Taylor on just about everything including Gamertag as always if you like what you heard this week come talk to us at Fintech Insiders on Twitter or podcast at 11fs.com if you want send us an email and please please don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode and leave us a review on itunes thank you very much for listening and goodbye